0: Hello, my name is Aviva Silverman, and I will be having a conversation with Mikhail for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experience of trans-identifying people. It's December 19th, or 17th? 19th. 19th, <laughs> and it's being recorded in my apartment. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Um, Could you introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, my
1: name's Mikhail uh, Khan. Uh, My pronouns are they, them, theirs. Um, Yeah, and I could go into more detail, but yes, that's uh, a very short intro of me and just my pronouns.
0: And where are you coming from today?
1: uh, I live in the Bronx. Currently, I've been living there since 2018. But yeah, I'm just commuting from the Bronx to Ridgewood, or... Or actually, I commuted from Chelsea to Ridgewood, then I'll go back to the Bronx, yeah.
0: And um, <clears throat> how do you find the Bronx?
1: The Bronx is interesting um, because I live... Uh, again, uh, just a little bit about me. I grew up in Dhaka, Bangladesh, so originally I'm, I'm <clears throat> my ethnicity is Bangladeshi. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, for me, living in the Bronx is interesting and also kind of a double-edged sword sometimes because I'm living in a predominantly Bangladeshi community, but they're very cishet and very, um, you know, I wouldn't say they've ever witnessed even trans people walking out amongst them. So, but I do love, again, the culture and the food and just, again, like there is a sense of uh, community there amongst the Bangladeshi, uh, Bangladeshi circles. But again, I do have to always hide certain parts of myself if I'm around certain subsets of the Barchester uh, area in the
0: Bronx. Yeah. Mm. And can we start from where you grew up, and yeah, and how you and how you eventually came? But we can start. We can start there.
1: Yeah. So I grew up. Uh, um, You know, uh, um, born uh, from the early 1990s, I've been, I grew up in Dhaka, Bangladesh, um, and I essentially grew up in this very uh, crowded neighborhood called Shantinagar, and that was my life for the first 15 years, like going, just growing up there and also, you know, going to school and, again, just obviously it was a very family-centered life, a very communal life, but also, um you know that it was a very um challenging childhood uh for for ver- various reasons but partially one of the main reasons being uh, my um, gender nonconformity uh, from an early age um and uh yeah and i think obviously um i think i grew up in a very uh in a household that was very um Subsumed in a lot of domestic violence, Um, and I think that was also kind of obscuring my access to my gender nonconformity and sexuality, because I was just too caught up in other people's lives, or just my family's lives, or some people at my school, and I never really acknowledged what was actually going on with me in those early years, and even... If there was something going on with me, other people's opinions would dictate or change my viewpoints about myself. So at, at many intervals, I would just think that, oh, I'm, you know, I don't, I'm don't, i not meant to exist or I'm just a problem to my <coughs> parents and to my school teachers. And, you know, it, it definitely contributed to very declining grades in those early years. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think... Again, like now that I think of it, it's just like uh, what people <clears throat> perceived was like, oh, like this person who was refusing to conform to uh, very feminine characteristics or modes of behavior. Um, like I guess I had to dismiss those elements of myself to fit in with the, with a very again, um, it's a it's a very predominantly Sunni Muslim society, or the whole country is honestly, and it has its own repercussions of being, like, a um, sort of, like, a um, Sunni supremacism, as some would call it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that that whole those whole intersections, like, being in a Muslim society, being gender non-conforming, and then, obviously, there were some... Mm, we My parents weren't well off, so there, there were also some ways uh, class was dictating my ability to access gender nonconformity, which I don't think gets talked about a lot in various circles. Of, because I think only, even in the United States, I feel like transness is only accessible to, um, mainly accessible to, again, white upper-class folks. So, uh, so I'll just stop there a little bit about uh, my childhood in Bangladesh.
0: Were there any sorts of like models or people in your childhood, that you could see in yourself or reflect back in yourself as being gender nonconforming. I mean, not till I mean,
1: I definitely did not see anyone basically reflected in myself because I, I would say I have. Okay, so it's complicated. Like even gender nonconformity individuals, because I think uh, what gets featured on media news outlets is mostly trans women. And we know how uh, trans women um, very hypersexualized and also relegated to the you know most forms of sex work, and that's what's happening on a consistent basis in Taka. And that's the those are the images that were portrayed uh, that I had I was accessing, or even like uh, folks are I saw, um, and then trans masculinity or other forms of non-binary. Um, ways of living it was just not at all in plain sight or um so again like uh there's a large push mostly in india which is more a colonial power in the, that region of south asia there is a push there for amongst trans masculine people to be heard and seen but i there wasn't in my time um growing up in Bangladesh there wasn't any movement for trans masks or non-binary or other forms of other ways of being um, other than the, again, the hypersexualized trans feminine figure. So so again, what I saw was obviously there were gender non performing and trans people, but it wasn't necessarily my reflection of what I am because to me, I was like, oh, what I am, it just does not exist. So therefore, I I should just try to be a, a woman and you know, hang out with the women and just try to be, <laughs> you know, try to carve some space um, within that very, con- those constricted sets of uh, performances and ways of being that were dictated to me. Again, from various elders and even my peers in school where, you know, if I at all talked about, oh, I'm, I'm I don't think um, <coughs> I like cis men or, or I or am attracted to cis men, if I say said those things, <laughs> most people would just retort and be like, okay, this is this is Bangladesh and you cannot talk this way. And that, that, those are just the messages that were told to me. So, but I think once I hit age 17, 18, I did um, start making other queer friends, even in Bangladesh. And I think that was uh, instrumental to at least forming some analysis in me that, oh, that there is some subculture here in this country, and then, and I think obviously, for lack of a better term, and I don't like subscribing to this narrative of like, oh, I left the country and I found queer people, which is true because that's what happened, but I don't think that's the (coughs) narrative I wanna, you know, portray about Bangladesh, that, oh, there's no queer or trans people. It's just, I think there are, but everyone is just kind of relegated to to some forms of cis normativity, there.
0: And so, when you met up with friends, where would you go to hang out?
1: I mean, again, these are predominantly que- uh, gay men. Um, and again, that's not, um, and that wasn't, again, the most affirming uh, way of, again, finding myself, but it was at least something that's different than what I was used to or being told. Um, I mean, they would throw uh, parties or, like, they would host their own little gatherings and I would go. And back then, um, people would just perceive me, oh, like, I was, like, a kind of uh, very... Ma- not a. I wouldn't even say I was very masculine presenting on anything. I was just, like, a kind of mask-appearing lesbian. And the word lesbian was imposed on me when I was not comfortable with that term. When... So I think there was also that. Like, I think... People also didn't have terms in Maladish. Um We have certain terms for same sex loving, which I have issues with the whole, the word same sex, but that's the only uh, Bangla word we have.
0: What is the word?
1: It is shomokami. Uh, but other than that, what? Someone else was asking me just a couple of days ago that oh, what is the what is like an accurate word for lesbian, and I don't have a word for it. Um, and for trans, I mean, I have so many issues with the word. It's it's currently now what um, Bengali people call third gender, and it's just called Tritio Lingo in Bangla, and that's just... That, th- those don't, don't describe a lot of what trans women want to be called and other trans people what we want to be called, so we don't even have a specific ba- Bangla terminology for how to describe experience. So if we don't even have terminology, I don't even know how we're going to actualize ourselves in even socially and politically, so, Yeah.
0: Yeah, that sounds really difficult. Yeah. Um, is there a way um, that you have communicated your gender in a, that feels comfortable?
1: I mean, you mean in the now or back then?
0: <clears throat> Either or both.
1: I mean, my trajectory with my gender, I mean, currently it doesn't feel as urgent because I think I've passed the stage of like, oh, this is me and I don't need to keep being traumatized by it. But I think um, from... Again, from a young age I knew that <clears throat> I used to think I was basically cursed like I thought oh um, hell awaits me and because uh, you know I grew up in a Muslim household hell awaits me and even I was like I think my father got fed up with me at a point and he sent me to uh, conversion therapy um, with an Islamic therapist who would just feed me ideas of how I should be a woman and womanhood is my birthright so or cis womanhood uh, is my birthright because I don't I think it, Lots of people can access womanhood, but in this particular case, it's womanhood So, um, so yeah, I mean, there were various, obviously, tra- traumatic things happening, and obviously, I wasn't processing them. So, in a way, I was just like, um, you know, and I realized a part of the whole root of the issue is sometimes my father and some elder folks in my life who are dictating things. So, again, I think part of yeah, actualizing my gender was moving away from uh, these toxic people, I would say, um, and, you know, just finding people who were more um, either like-minded or would have would be open to having or holding space for these conversations. And, um, and I think at a point how my gender, I guess, went through phases or something, uh, yes, I was labeled a lesbian, mass lesbian. Sure, I adopted that for a little while. Then I was like, okay, there's something deeply, um, uh, not right about what, how I'm saying I'm a mass lesbian. So then I said, okay, I am gender non-conforming. And then I started, I started using they, them pronouns from like 2012. So, um, and it was hard at first for people to even, cause I think back in 2012, 2013, their conversation on pronouns was very different. And, you know, I would get misgendered left and right, but at least with a subset of other trans people I knew um, um, in the U.S., it was uh, easier to just, okay, they, them, and non-binary, and then, um, and then, you know, during, I guess, 2016, 2017, I mean, I mean, I feel like there was a lot happening that I could get into between 2011, 2017. But after 2017, um, again, um, I decided, okay, I'm going to start HRT. And so I started HRT uh, around 2018, and it's been about four, close to four to five years now. So I think I'm at a stage where I don't even think about gender, really. It's just there. And I think that's great, but I'm also like... I don't think a gender is ending. It's just I'm just not thinking persistently about it and not having... And not having too much anxiety about it. So, yeah.
0: That's a big evolution. Huh?
1: Yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah, that's where I'm at in 2022.
0: And um, just to kind of go back through all the different forms of recognition or being able to kind of, like, see yourself, do you have a memory of, like, the first trans person you ever met or either in media or in person... Or just a way to kind of like see someone and be like, oh, this exists. Yeah.
1: Yeah, um, The first trans person I ever met, um, I mean, I would say definitely a trans woman who was in Bangladesh and she runs uh, an organization. Her name is uh, uh, Joya Shigdar. She's still in Bangladesh, she's an elderly um, trans woman. So again she was the first per person I met in terms of okay she's um i mean uh, she's a former sex worker and uh you know she um uh, I think she's still doing some great work and she's trying to um um uh, Move beyond the third gender label. That's been uh, again. The third gender label is only prescribed for trans women. It doesn't even acknowledge other forms of gender identities. So there's a there's clearly an issue there. So, but I think yeah, she would be the first trans person or in Bangladesh that I witnessed. And and I do think like I've, I mean, so I think part of also my evolution was you know I did have a best friend. their name uh, was uh, Orno, and, you know, um, they, I mean, we were the same age, like, we were 18, and then, you know, friendship evolved and stuff, but I think, um, you know, they identified as a gay man, uh, or like a gay man back then, but I do think, because I was also identifying, oh, like, as a queer person or whatever, a masked lesbian, and we both didn't really have, we both didn't come into fruition, but I do think... um there was something there with Orono and I think that relationship also changed my, um, and, you know, they were my best friend but, uh, you know, um, and that was also part of the trauma of my early 20s. Uh, They uh, took their life uh, back in uh, 2013 and I think partially that had to do with, um, I mean, they weren't openly discussing their gender maybe as a trans feminine person or anything but I think that was part of it and obviously that wrecked me or wrecked my soul for years and you know i'm in 2022 now but it's still like at a point for some time i couldn't even talk about orno because i was just devastating And they died actually in new york um in 20 um end of 2013 around this time uh, in december so um but i do think that was also instrumental in that uh, relationship with that person the Bangladeshi queer person was instrumental in um, <clears throat> forming my sense of self. Whether it's just, doesn't all have to be related to the gender, it's just my confidence in myself, which is very key to even forming your gender identity in like a very op- oppressive society that I would say, not just Bangladesh, even like here in the US, I think people like simplify, oh, what is New York such so great, but then there's so many types <laughs> of crap happening here, so... Yeah.
0: Um, and there's something I wanted, to, or I was just thinking about around kind of like the invisibilization of like um, more mask presenting mm-hmm. people and sort of like how that existed in both Bangladesh and in he, here in some forms. And I wanted to know, yeah, a little more about your experience with that.
1: I think it's different. Um, again, I do think it's again society's preoccupation with again like uh, the, the, I used the word hypersexualization then also I think there's a an anti-black element to that because we see black trans women are mostly hypersexualized and I think this scales in the case with Bangladeshi uh, trans women where because of their involvement in sex work and um, and just cis men's and their proximity to cis-, cis men's pleasure in like the sex workers market I think that is what created this, I mean, hyper-visibility. And I'm not trying to take away from the fact that, yes, trans women should be visible to somebody, but not in the way that I think media portrays, or especially either either it's centered on their killings or murders, or it's centered on, oh, like, they're a sex worker or something. So that was what was going on with trans mask people. Um, I think... I don't know if, if I would even say invisibility of it. It's just... I think trans mass people are kind of infantilized um, in Bangladesh, like, um, because, again, like, societies... And even now, like, we're in 2022, and I think people are like, oh, like, trans just means you aspire to a, a certain way of cis-womanhood or cis-manhood, and because trans mass people... Oh, like, they're like a, a child version of a man. Like, I think there's, that was, that is playing out somewhere in Bangladesh, and that's why. And also, like, I mean, I think, I mean, I kind of wrote an article about it, about why trans-mask people do get erased in public, not just in Bangladesh. There are other countries um, who have the same issue, um... I think it also has to do with trans women. I think they um form community in groups, whereas trans mass people they don't have that same group structure, and I think that also plays a key part on this this isolation that happens with and I'm saying trans mass trans women uh, there's so many other genders in between and beyond, but I just but those are just the two I talking about like because again Bal- currently Bangladesh and its current formation they only see trans as like oh there's trans women hijra and then trans men don't have a name and if they do mm, you know it's not my concern <laughs> what happens to them like that's why um, but I would say trans women and trans men are facing the same levels of issues at accessing services accessing housing there is but obviously i do think trans women bear the brunt of the violence in any case like i just think it's again society's obsession with a misogyny and um sexualizing people in, in this manner so
0: right um and to just kind of pivot to kind of your trajectory trajectory and uh-huh. um, what brought you to new york uh, I mean I
1: so I mean I knew or at least this was one thing that I think yes, my family was uh uh, you know, a mess. But <laughs> they wanted me to go to America for college. I mean that was their I mean, they were like, Oh, you have to go and you cannot stay here. This country is going to I mean, violence is not I mean there's always um a lot of issues in Bangladesh that I don't want to get into politically and then other things. And obviously I was a woman, a girl, and they were like, this is, you, you know, you, as a girl, you should just leave the country. And, um, cause, and I think they kind of knew that I was a little different. I mean, that, that much was apparent. They were like, I don't think, like, you're going to blend in here based on how. So I think they kind of, they saw, there was like, okay, <laughs> I'm just not going to blend in. And they didn't see marriage really was on my cards or anything. They were they were talking about marriage, but I, I was just like, I, "That's not gonna happen." So, um, so I I went to Philadelphia for um, to this liberal arts college, to this liberal arts college. Uh, so, um, so that's how I ended up in the U.S. Um, and then I came to New York after I graduated. So that's how I stayed on. Um. Yeah.
0: And what were you studying?
1: I I mean, my father was very strict in the sense, of, like you have to study a practical subject, and um, and he he was like, okay, I mean, e- economics was where you were okay in, so I just studied economics, but I also um, did really like uh, film and film studies, so. I mean, that I did out of my own accord, and my father didn't really know about it. So I just had a double major in economics and film. And yeah, I mean, um, I feel like, yeah, because you don't have really access to the arts, really, in in the Bangladesh uh, school curriculum as much. um, I never obviously followed economics. Currently, I just work in communications and stuff. So... It is similar to film to some degree, but, but because I need a steady job with health insurance due to my, um, some of my um, disabilities, I, I'm just like, okay, maybe I'm not, I didn't make it in the film industry, so I might just, I'm just, I just work currently in the non-profit sector, which isn't the greatest, but, you know, it pays the bills. Got yeah. You. Yeah.
0: And so what was it like to come here to study? I mean
1: i I think I didn't know proper English when I came here first um it was a steep climb just to just to even talk English like my peers um and I think yeah, I mean even my professors were like, oh like I mean, they tried to really help me uh with my English and also just referring things I could read and stuff, so um. But then I was also hungry for knowledge because I felt so much of it was kept from me um, while growing up because everyone was dictating how I should be. And so I think I was very hungry for uh, a lot of knowledge, not just, I mean, more knowledge about queer trans issues. So I think that's what helped me um, improve my English. Uh, Now, if I say anything, I mean, people might say, oh, I wouldn't beg you. (laughs) I was like oh you uh if you whether you had you know some english issues but you know i just feel like so that i think again i was always like i want to know more no more so so that's i think though that, that was the initial battle uh that i faced just in this country um more the english and then obviously like paper uh, some immigration issues um that were a little bit ongoing but then i was on a student visa so but I think, yeah, I mean, I just, I just think uh, because I went to primarily a queer-ish college, uh, that helped uh, form my identity. So it took a while. The first year or two were a little isolated because I really was very Islamic. So I was just like, I don't want to talk to the queer people here because I just don't see why I would. Like, I just think it's just wrong. Um, because I was also stuck in my old ways of like okay this is like whatever parties they're throwing, I'm not gonna go you know people would try to get me to go but I just wouldn't because I was just like it's against my religion but I think slowly I I mean I all I knew that okay I, I was just kind of miserable in my repressed self so yeah
0: and so, what what party was the threshold? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it wasn't a party. It was just making more queer friends that were like okay, a little different, and then,
0: and you know, I guess I
1: started liking some people, and that was out of my control. And I was like, okay, if, uh, if Allah was really looking out for me, why would I freaking like this person? Like, it doesn't make any sense. So, some so reality wasn't matching my brain. You know what I was training my brain to think about. Uh, Islam and religion and everything. So you know when reality hits you all the time, you have to. I mean, that's I think what was pushing my these rigid um, walls that I drew up, right? So I don't fully recall what was the turning moment. I don't think there's any. It's just a series of things that were happening. So
0: yeah. If there was any kind of like memorable. Mama.
1: I mean I knew that There was actually like A bond that she She was a senior And I was a freshman So she was a bond I mean she was straight though But I remember liking her And I was just like I don't understand What is going on Like Again like I, I think I was just like So bent on repressing myself That At a point You, you just Have to Stop Putting this pressure On yourself Right Mm. yeah
0: how do you um connect to Islam now
1: I mean it's complicated uh it's not complicated I mean I don't really like I said I think I stopped thinking about a lot of things too deeply I just think my relationship with Islam right now um I would say I'm spiritual but I'm not you know super like I have to go to this gathering I have to go you know I don't do the five walk namaz uh like I used to um you know, when I actually came to terms with, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, queerness and also starting to come to terms, I did feel some um, animosity from other Muslim folks on campus because they were like, oh, like, you're an MSA, but you're doing this, you're going to this party, you know, so there was just some weird dynamics that were happening in college with some of the Muslim students because I was more starting to be more openly queer. Um, so... So I didn't, it's not I left Islam, I think it made, it became more a private thing for me, but then I think when I came to New York, I did meet a lot of queer Muslims here, so that's when you have your own little huddle of like, okay, um, you're meeting up for Iftar or Ramadan, so it just became a whole separate thing, like if I am to practice Islam, it would just be with other queer Muslims in the community versus Going, like even though I'm in Parkchester, there's a couple of mosques, I just wouldn't go to those mosques because I could totally blend in, but I'm just not going to go because it doesn't feel like... I'm sure one of the uh, preachers would start saying sermons around uh, you know, this... Because I know some um, mullahs, as they call it, dupa, do say hateful things against Korean trans people. So again, for me, I do think it's necessary for the space to be safe. For me to even like engage with Islam in a communal way if not then I know my boundaries in the sense that I'm just gonna keep Islam to myself so
0: what did it feel like to meet other queer Muslims here
1: I mean so it actually started from college there was this friend uh she was just like oh there's someone in Philly uh who's like a, you know, black, queer, Muslim, you should meet her, I was like, uh, I don't think so, because I was just like, I'm not a Muslim anymore, you know, like, stop telling me to, but then I was very curious, so I did end up meeting that person, and she invited a couple of other people, and then I stayed in touch, and then, um, and then she was like, oh, there's a huge community in New York, not a huge, like, it was just maybe 10 people, but that's huge, back in 2013, you know, so. So she was just like, oh, let me just introduce you through email. And then, and then I knew that there were, like, these monthly meetups and stuff. So that's how I met some people. Obviously, every, every group has its own little messy stuff happening. And, you know, you get caught up in the mess, too. So I don't want to go into the mess. But, you know, everyone, every place has its own queer drama. So, and the queer Muslim groups are not far from it either. So, yeah.
0: Okay so
1: it's not the game. Yeah. No, I mean everything's fine but I do think yeah because I think I was very cuz I really wanted to reconnect with Islam and I think I mean after meeting these queer Muslims and realizing oh okay there are ways to be that you don't just denounce Islam and just you can be in some space together but it's not really a super important thing for me for me and right now because I'm just like I'm spiritual now to some degree and I even look at other religions like buddhism and stuff so i don't see myself oh i have to be a super muslim but um yeah
0: right yeah um and i don't know if there if you want to speak about this but um i was wondering because you're drawn to film if mm-hmm. there's like certain films that you watch that give you a lot of information about yourself or Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just
1: anything that felt I don't know that's like a difficult question because everything I watch a ton of films just to see what's going on and I watch a lot of art house films but I mean I do know at an early age and I think a lot of trans people reference this film even though it's kind of traumatic um but I watched this when I was 12 Uh, it's that movie boys don't cry so it's just like, cause again, but I do think obviously it's a, it is a it is a white centered narrative to some degree. But I do think it, um, and it was obviously played by a cis woman, uh, who I think later acknowledged in her Oscar speech that oh, like you know, I you know, it wasn't played by a trans person. But um, so that that was that. But then obviously watching that film, I'm like, I didn't really put the connections together because I was 12 or 13 where, ever, where everything other people were saying to me in Bangladesh was like, oh, you, whatever you're going through, it's just not going to happen because one of the earliest things I told my father, I was like, oh, I think I was nine or something. I was like, oh, um, I don't think I'm a girl. Like, stuff like that, I would say. Just even in the room with him and he was just, I think he knew something was weird. I'm like weird or like he probably had a red flag in his head. So, he basically, he would just say, Oh, don't say these things in public, or like this is just not possible what you're saying, so you know, you shouldn't even speak it. So, but with the so boys don't cry because that would so very few films are available in Taka, like they're only because um, it was it's just um, only like very mainstream films or some Oscar nominated films have just come in just because of um. Just because of how even like we didn't have a proper movie theater till like two thousand four or five, so like a proper um, yeah so so I think that was one film and then I mean I wouldn't say like I watched trans films growing up uh, I think when I came to college I started watching a couple of trans related films, but I do think it was very binary um in the portrayals of trans people there um, um, obviously things have changed a lot in recent years and we watch everything and everything now but um, um, but off the top of my head like I I can't give you a list of films but I do think I oh, I've not a list
0: yeah just, and oftentimes. yeah but I would
1: say that was an earlier film that I watched that I but it did impact my idea of like oh is this the fate that awaits trans people who are kind of boyish or like all that so that wasn't a great thing and obviously like if you i mean i secretly barely watched that l word thing but it was terrible it was terrible that trans mass portrayal there and everyone talks about how terrible it is so 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 those are the mainstream things that are available to me um but in terms of like plaque or poc trans stuff i think that's those came to my uh realm later on in life it wasn't a and i don't i think it wasn't a thing even in the 2000s to have black or POC trans characters on film.
0: So, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so when you um, left college, did you come immediately to New York or?
1: Um, No, I stayed in Philly for about uh, six, seven months, but then I couldn't really find a job like that. Like it was just, I think it's harder to, it was harder apparently to find full-time jobs there. So I was just doing some part-time Gigs And then, I mean, right as I came to New York, my bestie, you know, they, they passed away. or And that was a terrible blow for me as an entry point to New York. Because my cousin was like, oh, you can stay with me. Because she was living in the city then with her um, fiancé. So I was staying with her. But then this, my best friend died. So I was just, and then, you know, that led me to like me being suicidal uh, to a certain degree um, after seeing that play out. So I definitely had one of the worst years of my life in 2014. Um, I don't know how I recovered from that. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't, I don't really want to go into details too much into in this uh, chat, but it was just like, um, like, yeah, I mean, I think in your formative years, if someone so close to you passes away, you just start to question your reality more and more. And especially if it, someone that someone was a gender nonconforming conforming like you. So... So I think, um, so that was a, a big, I think, but that, I think that also helped me, I don't know if it helped me like figure out my gender more and more, but I realized that, I guess I realized the isolating weight of some of the gender stuff I was going through because I couldn't really talk about it with other cis people. Um, and, uh. And I don't think they realized the gravity of the situation that took place. That there was a gender non-conforming person who passed away. To you all, mostly cis people, this person was cis when this wasn't the reality. And then yeah. me, another GNC person, was just like completely bedridden from the pain and the grief. So, So anyway... But I do think it made me realize the people who do show up, and that was actually some subsets of my biological family and some friends. And I think th- those are the times where okay, like, you know who your real, who your real pals are and even biofamily. Because my father wouldn't have it. He was, he was just like, oh, you're depressed? Get over it. Like, you know, he would just say terrible things to me. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: and, um, and once you were here, where did you start to socialize in New York? yeah, like were there certain bars or like parties or that like, oh. they got to meet people
1: yeah, like again, one of the first instruments was the queer Muslim circles, and then um going to yeah different um parties or like just uh you know these South Asian collectives that were here, so I um You know i think there were some certain south asian or other um, poc activism events that were happening and those are not that were sober spaces to some degree like some of them so um so those are spaces where you know uh, i would meet people or form um or just like have more conversations That, but i would say that in even in those earlier years in new york like 2014-15 um, I guess again my articulation of trans identity wasn't fully formed I think I was still hanging around a lot with cisgender people so I think when you're hanging out with cisgender people you don't necessarily dialogue too much about gender so there was that so by cisgender people I meaning cisgender queer people so there was that but I think I think in the in, the, in that year though because like, it was just 2014 and I was pretty, you know, suicidal back then. So I think I think I started associating New York with uh, negative emotions because I was just like this is the place I entered, I lost someone so close to my heart and then and it, it is can be an isolating city if you're depressed, like or like you walk through. So I think I was also like I need to leave New York, um because I just don't see how I can recover from this ordeal you know so i think i mean in early 2015 i i was just like you know i don't know if i want to be in america i think i was just going through a phase where i just didn't want to do anything and i want to escape i don't know where i just and i was also young so i was just like i just didn't want to do anything and um you know go to work but and it was like a non-profit job where i was doing program work but I was just, like, very, um, yeah, I was very disconnected from myself. So, and even gender, uh, I wasn't even, I mean, it was there, but I wasn't addressing, oh, like, what should I I do about it? Like, so, um, so I applied to some, like, college in India, and, you know, I I did get in, and I was like, okay, I'm just going to go. It was in Delhi, so I left, but then... And I got connected to some queer and trans people there um, in Delhi. So I went around July 2015. And you know, I did meet some uh, interesting people there. But I think once I went to that call, uh, university, uh, it's called Jawa Harlo, uh, Harlo, uh, Nehru JNU for short, the gender binary really got to me when I, as soon as, because it was a girls' hostel and a boys' hostel. I was placed in the girls' hostel And I couldn't leave it, so I didn't realize how hard it hit me uh, in that space, where I was just. And it's nothing against girls; it was just me. Like I, people might say, "Oh, like you're in a girls' house," you know. And I don't have anything against girls, or but I do think it was starting to get to me. This this whole segregation, and how you're supposed to interact with one another based on that segregation, and I thought I left that behind, and that is also part deeply embedded in a lot of South Asia. And behavior and codes of conduct. Like even I went to a school in Dhaka where I had to wear a girl's uniform and the boys had to wear a different uniform. So, so all this to say, I think that's when I knew. Oh, like I'm re- I I rebelled against it in the sense that, but it is it did come from a place of privilege and choice because I can execute a choice in that setting where I could be like, oh, I, I don't think this college, university is for me. Um, it is a free university. I didn't have to pay. It's a public university in Delhi. So the costs were, basically I paid zero to get in and even to access a school, some schooling there. But I was just like, I can't take it being in the girls' hostel. And I talked to another trans man there who, who did go to JNU uh, a couple of years before me. And he was also like, yes, I went there. Girls' hostel was terrible. I only drank throughout the whole experience of... So I was like, no, I'm not going to drink. I don't... I mean, that's one thing. I I was just, I don't want to drink or do drugs, and I just can't because that's just going to make me lose my mind. So... And then, you know, on top of that, my uh, mother was also very sick. Um, So I went to Dhaka, Bangladesh, um, in September of October uh, 2020... Sorry, October 2015, and then my mother was very sick, meaning uh, she had like a brain aneurysm. So, um, so you know, I was there for a couple of months. But then my father was like, "Oh, you have to go back to America. Like this isn't like he just didn't like it that I was in Taka or like. Um, plus, I think you know there was some level of embarrassment that oh like I'm gender conforming and hanging out the family like this and getting older and stuff. So. So, um, and, you know, I have, uh, just so you know, I have an older sister who was also around, but she was also very abusive, uh, towards me because of my, uh, sexuality and gender. So again, like there were so many dynamics happening in that family and even I didn't want to stay there, but it was also like, okay, my uh, mother then eventually fell into a coma for a year. So then I came back here though. Um, and again, just, uh, you know, just did some odd jobs here and there uh but again throughout it all i think my father wasn't updating me about my mother's health uh status so i assume that okay she's in a coma which is terrible like uh she was a uh mostly at home um um and again like there was just some uh, home setting for her because she wasn't always in the hospital so I think that also took up a lot of my 2016, just hearing these updates or lack of updates. But i also trying to distract myself because I knew there was this um, dark thing happening in the background, which is my mother uh, maybe slowly passing away. But then I'm like, oh, how do I distract myself? And again, I wasn't even addressing a gender topic. And this is how I also was like, I think to me addressing my gender identity was sort of like... I feel it would disappoint people, and then also it was scary to think about because other terrible things are happening in the background. So I think that's where I was like, well, I put this gender topic in a shelf, because I didn't want to address it. I was just like, okay, I'm gender non-conforming, but I knew that I didn't like how I'm appearing in public or... um And then, you know, in, uh, you know... And this is where, you know, the big blow happened where I was like, you know, I I should start taking steps with my gender identity, which is uh, my mother, you know, passed away in uh, February 2017. So after that, I was just like, you know, again, like, I feel like I went from one grief to another, which is my best friend dying and then my mom. uh, And, you know, part of the grief with my mom was more so like, oh, like, she didn't get to know that I was trans, so that was also part of it. Like, I think there were just so many things that were unsaid, but she knew that there was something up with my child, like, that we weren't talking about. And I think that was the pain point of losing my mom, that um, that she never really um, got to know the, the, the trans child or like. So there was that. But I think after that, I was just like, okay, my mom is, uh, passed away, which is weighing heavily on me, but I was also, like, I need to also think about myself in this context where, like, I can just go from one grief to another, so for me, it sort of kind of, like, laid the foundation towards late 2017 that, oh, like, I want to take steps to start my gender transition, so, or, like, at least the medical transition, I know... The medical transition of most trans people are heavily, you know, talked about in media. And, like, that's the general trend. But to me, that made sense for me to go through the medical transition. And I didn't tell my father. I didn't tell my sister. I didn't tell my larger family. I was just like, just like Islam is personal to me. I was just like, this is a deeply personal experience for me. I don't think anyone, if they really want to know and care, you know, we would have a conversation like adults. Like, so that's even how I approached it. I didn't even come out like that. It was just like, I think, first of all, like, I think it was always in people's faces that, oh, I'm a trans person. But if you don't acknowledge that, I mean, I think I've given enough evidence to <laughs> various people in Bangladesh and the Bangladeshi community that I'm trans. But now it's just like, like a more in-your-face or concrete step. That I'm medically transitioning, uh, and that that I said I started that again, um, 2018 spring. So yeah, so <laughs> I'll stop there for now.
0: <laughs> you don't have to stop, but yeah, thank you. <clears> hmm. <throat> um. And sorry, I'm going back into mm-hmm. um, the beginning when you said that you had written. Um, like, a, some, you had done some writing about, um, like, Mask of Center people. I was wondering if you do other forms of writing or how that came about.
1: Um, but can you expand what you mean?
0: Oh, you said you had written an article, I believe?
1: Yeah, I mean, I generally like to write, but different types, like whether it's screenwriting or, you know, essays. I don't have time right now because of my job, but I do, like, writing of different things. But are you asking what topics I like to write yeah, about? Yeah, if there's or? a
0: specific focus or, or a place that the writing goes.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think with the some essays, um, I do talk about um, Bangladesh a lot uh, because Bangladesh is a country gained liberation in 1971. So I do talk about, oh, like, has it really gained liberation when, you know, there's so many subsets or populations haven't, can't even, like, formulate themselves in society, so I do talk, I do critique that uh, nationalism aspect of those, um, um, of Bangladesh's formation and what it seemingly stands for when it doesn't, so there's that. Um, so those are more critical pieces, but I do think with screen, uh, some screenwriting, um, stuff, this was, again, in the past, not really now, because I'm stuck in the non-profit industrial complex, so, I mean, I do like sometimes writing a little bit of comedy um, with uh, trans figures or, like, talking about Islam and its approach to trans people. And then I also... Uh, yeah, I did write a, some dramatic narratives, uh, narratives, of two of, like, um, you know, how a toxic masculinity can show up in a romantic relationship, especially if it's a trans mass person. So there was that that I did sort of make. I mean, I... Not just screenwriting, but it's just I also directed that short film. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I do want to do those things, but I don't have time. And I do think it requires, like... Um, yeah, just time and energy that I feel it's I need to be better about now, uh, given the pressures of a full-time job.
0: Right.
1: So, yeah.
0: And do you want to talk about your job now? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, there's nothing going on in my job it's like I feel like I do comms and marketing which is a, a subset in the nonprofit sector but yeah I mean it's been kind of turbulent even at the beginning when I started my gender transition in 2018 I was at this NGO and they do eye health or whatever but they paid you know decently so I entered with like okay decent hopes and but I was presenting again very mass but also very not very mass what am I saying but feminine but mass so it wasn't clear to HR people, oh, like, maybe that's how another lesbian, you know, or something, or like a queer person just mass presenting, which is fine. Like, I think that's more acceptable when you're cis and in the workplace and being cis and queer. But then I broke it to HR, hey, I'm, like, starting hormones, um, how do you want to deal with it in the workplace? Because, I don't know, do you have protocols in place? She was like, no. And then, you know, you're our first transgender employee. And I was just like, okay, I mean, great. Like, I mean, not great. It was just awful. Because, uh, again, a lot of these were um, cis white people uh, in the workplace. And they were, they didn't really understand that I was transitioning. They would just make comments about my looks or my voice. Like, strange comments that um, was inappropriate. And then they stopped inviting me to work meetings because um, they thought... It was... I mean, they didn't know. Like, basically, I think they drove me out of my job by making me ineffective, you know? So it was awful. And it was a very subtle form of discrimination, but still overt, that I didn't really know how to... And in the end, the HR is a function of the organization. They're going to protect the organization at all costs. And I realized it the hard way. No matter what I told the HR, who claimed to be this bisexual woman, but it did nothing and then you know in the end I just quit in early 2019 um with like oh like I gave a long letter explaining that you know I understand I'm your first transgender employee but this is how it played out in my experiences and I don't understand how that can be how this even happened like I guess I detailed all the experiences I've had just how that made me feel um then that's how I left it I didn't go through like a complaint process with the New York City Commission or whatever of human rights Um, because I just don't think the law is for trans people here because I think the burden of proof I don't have any proof these are all like in passing or like you know um, you know expecting me to use a women's restroom stuff like that like these are just like um, and I think for I mean I'm sure other Uh, lawyers or trans lawyers agree like I don't think the law works for trans people when you're trying to file a complaint I don't think it's like so I didn't even go that route for me it was just like I left um and it's on their conscience on how they treated me so after that I started working at um the gender and family project at the Ackerman Institute for the family so a lot of them were trans people there yeah after the job that you know didn't uh treat me like they didn't like basically discriminated against me as a trans person just transitioning in the workplace. I started working at the Gender and Family Project which is at the Ackerman Institute. Um, So I think that really um, at least really uh, affirmed my beliefs that okay like there are trans people in the workplace. It was a very affirming environment for me especially after the experience I went through at the previous workplace. So, my most of my colleagues were trans, mostly trans people of color and black trans people. So, yeah, I mean, there were um, two white cis people sort of at the leadership level running the, the gender and family project. But uh, overall, I, I had a positive experience at gender and family project. Um, but then, you know, the pandemic hit and there was some, like, downsizing happening. So, eventually I had to leave myself and my supervisor. We left because they were like, oh, we're going to cut your job. So... So then I ended up at a, um, a a foundation, a queer foundation, which was also pretty good, but it very, like, I mean, because all of it was remote work, um, you know, I, I guess as a person, like, I do want to have some relationships with colleagues, like, friendly relationships or trying to get to know them as people, which I wasn't able to at this foundation that I'm not going to name, but... Um, um, but overall, like, people that were nice and all, but there was a lot of management issues. Like, the ED changed. Everything really changed, and it was just hard to do my job and be, like, uh, supervised as a comms person. So currently, I work at another LGBTQ place that I'm not going to name in this interview, but it is a... It's only been four months I've been there, but it is a little messy. And, you know, I'm... I just want to see where it goes. Uh, I just think there's a lot happening. I mean, I think I need to stop also working in these LGBTQ spaces. I just think there's a lot of liberalism happening in some of these, and I just don't like it. Like, I don't know where I'm going to end up because I don't think workplaces are for me. Like, I just think I go there. I, I just want a job where I just get paid to exist. But I know that's not possible. I know that's uh, you know irrational thinking, but that's literally like, hey i got up i'm breathing give me give me a sound salary but you know i i just don't think that's possible but you know i think hold on another note i do think i do want a salary to work in more film based settings but um but i think i struggle with again like i have um i am on some levels autistic so i do struggle with like oh like the point the reason i don't want to work on some film sets which i did at a point actually um, because it's too chaotic for me and I think my um, autism then comes in and it re- it really makes me anxious to see, you know, just, I guess freelancing really, I can't do it right now because of these issues that I have. But, so that's why I'm like, okay, I'm at this full-time job, but I do know that working in like a film setting or a film organization, the the, the pay scale might be lower. So again, I'm trying to see like how I can, not be in these LGBTQ spaces because they're a mess
0: um, just to ask one more question about that because yeah there's all these like internal dynamics in all these groups that both feel like more aligned with aspects of your maybe socio economic like whatever background that you, you feel more like safe or held in but then also express themselves in what you say is like in this form of liberalism
1: and then contradictions, like, you know, I do think, you know, uh, re, you know, representation politics has preceded over other forms of material gains, so I do think that's a major issue in all of these places where, oh, you have these people, but then they're at the leadership level, some LGBTQ people, but they're not, they're just kind of what people would, what some might refer to as hoarding power, but not really thinking beyond that and again it becomes like an optical thing versus an actual like cuz for me a good organization would have more uh horizontal structures but that's not the case these these organiz- these liberal lgbtq organizations that keep adding more hierarchy and it's it just yeah so i mean i could go on and on about lgbtq organizations and the gay ink industry but yeah so but i just think yeah but even there's a there's even a subset of spaces that are trans inc and even i'm not into that like i just think i feel like we keep replicating these systems that we vow to escape from but they keep being replicated even in these non-profit settings and which again i don't think non-profit settings are at all freedom based
0: have you found any groups that you feel more <laughs> aligned to
1: it's hard because I think I mean my therapist ways and like I think I'm just a little bit of a pessimistic person based on life experiences. But I don't think my pessimism is like oh like I want to tear. I just think I think we can think of alternate structures. And I do think I have community who do think that way, and that I just don't think um, we have the resources really to set up those alternate structures.
0: And when you were talking about horizontal like a, a format what other 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 ways that you could you would think to organize labor that would help function differently yeah like i
1: mean i think outside of any 501c3 setting any collective that i've been part of any those are all horizontal decision making those worked a lot better
0: and what collectives were those
1: one i can't name because it is a political south asian collective and i can't name it because um there's actual uh, repercussions against this collective mm, cuz uh we uh, organize against Brahminism, which is a form of caste based uh discrimination in south asia and in the diaspora so it's called Brahminism. i mean yes we talk about white supremacy in this country but i think brahmanism is a very um talk uh, like a very poisonous <laughs> Um, element in uh, a lot of South Asia, not just South Asian circles. It is actually one of the oldest systems of oppression um, in the world. It stems from Hinduism and the caste caste pyramid that uh, yeah. emerged from that, or has it actually dictates Hinduism? Actually, the caste pyramid. So, so that's also what I've been doing actually since the 2014, 2015 era, like uh, organizing with others progressive South Asian queer trans and also heterosexual people like against casteism and Brahminism. So that has been also part of how my transness got formed as a Muslim trans person that, Oh, I need to see beyond Brahminism and, you know, if you might kill me, but I have to, I mean, you know, we have people like Alok, for example, like they are, I guess what would, some would say a towering figure, um in the south asian non-binary and I, you know i do really love their uh, takes on again like healing and other forms of um just again be um again their takes on gender identity but they are i mean one critique that has emerged from various south asian queer trans actors they don't talk about their caste position position they, they, positionality they are a brahmin um their family is a brahmin origin and that is the oppressor caste in South Asia and India. So they, I mean, they do talk about it sparingly. So I think that's where I'm like, oh, like, who is uplifted even in the South Asian trans community? Um, And from what I can tell, it's mostly been upper caste South Asian trans people. And these include folks like Alok and then other people. And you wouldn't, you never see a Bangladeshi or a Nepalese or an Afghan trans you know, media, you know, personality, so again, like, there are, there are also, like, so many hierarchies in the South Asian trans uh, circles, that I think, I'm not trying to organize against, like, that, I think all trans people deserve safety, and all that, but I do think it is a conversation that needs to happen, that isn't really happening on a wider scale, and, yeah, I mean, these are, I guess, what some would say hot takes, but it's really not, like, there are critiques of Upper caste trans people who are who just have the platforms and um, hasn't really shown any like meaningful um, contribution to other trans like we uh, so the lowest caste in the South Asia is Dalit the untouchable and there's so many Dalit trans people in Bangladesh in India in Pakistan even even here to some degree not as much because you do need wealth and resources to migrate to this country to some degree um which i had access to and that i'm upfront on that yes i did have some class positionality that helped me migrate here i didn't live here all my life but i did it did help me uh, because i had some connections so whereas you know other trans people here grew up here south asian trans people most of them indian upper caste you know their families are massively wealthy and but i don't think that gets talked about really about caste or class
0: but within your organizing group it, it is it, it is. is and you know
1: we don't have upper caste people in that collective really like we're all either muslim or dalit or other kashmiri so uh so there's that i mean it is still a handful of people though who are trying to talk about these things or like organize like if uh, you know when there's a, atrocities happening in South Asia this collective is the only one who at least does something in the, in the public sphere and in, either in a park here or somewhere but so there's that and then you know I used to um, you know at least uh, participate with take back the Bronx or decolonize this place some of them like to some degree uh you know, there was the the museum tour that happened to decolonize this place. It was the, a natural history of was the natural history museum. It's like a decolonized it was a, an uh, indigenous people's day. so so I was involved in that like my my collective, so one of the speakers was me and someone else. so it's just like so I do think the South Asian political collective are part of that. I mean, I've been with it for many years. I want to leave, essentially, at a point because I, I feel like other people should do some, you know, work because I'm, like, getting old. But, but so there's that. So I feel like that's a hierarchical structure. It's always been that way. And then, you know, I used to be part of South Asia Diasporic Artist Collective. That kind of faded away, again, due to... Um, it was horizontal decision-making, but I think because caste was such an issue in their collective, like there were a lot of upper caste people dominating the space. I think that's why the collective didn't um as much last for too long. So there's that. I mean obviously but I would say at least while whatever spaces that are non five O one C three, like I don't think there was ever a hierarchy in those, as far as I can tell. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you have an idea uh, where you'd want to go after this job or is this just kind of a holding space now? Until...
1: I don't know. I feel like I... I don't know if I'm biding my time. No, I'm not biding my time. I'm just like... Um, I don't know. Ideally, I'd like to... Again, I want to work on my um, book and then I want to work on this documentary. Then I want to work on... I feel like a job is a job that pays the bills, and I just need time outside of the job to do my personal hobbies.
0: I know we're going to wrap up soon, but you just mentioned the book. Would you just would be you be able to just speak about the Gister? No,
1: it would, I mean, I can't really speak to it because it's I barely started it due to okay. lack of time. But it'll be, it its a novel. I'm not really into the trans. I I do, I do respect the trans memoir. But I, I just don't think I want to participate in that, that type of storytelling. Because I do think uh, the trans memoir becomes like this... Not all. I do think there are some really great trans memoirs, um, books. But I think a lot of it has become like like objects of consumption for a lot of cis people. Like to understand, oh, what does trans mean? Like how can I engage with trans people? I just... I do think the trans memoir, I'm sure, will hopefully evolve more and more, but I do think, yeah, I'm kind of a little bit opposed to the trans memoir because I just don't think there's an end point to a memoir, which seems to be the case for some books that I've read. So, but for me, I'm more interested in the novel structure and the fictional elements.
0: Okay. I really hope you get time and space to work on that.
1: Thank you. I hope so, too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up?
1: Um, No. Uh, I think I, you know, I did talk about Bangladesh a little bit, but, you know, nothing I say will ever capture the full essence of my time in Bangladesh, both the painful parts and the good parts. So I just think, you know, it is, uh, it's always going to be like, okay, when... Part of me is also like, when can I return back? Because the last time I was back was in 2017 after my mother's death, so that's always on my mind. Like, when can I return um, and not be like shackled by my past? You know, so so there's that.
0: I wish you would return when it when it feels right, when it's yeah. right for you. Thank, Thank you. you.